Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Tonight, we're talking with Kim L. Hunt. Kim has a 30-year career that spans the public, private, and nonprofit sectors with a focus on advocacy and nonprofit management. She's currently the executive director of Pride Action Tank, a social justice lab devoted to improving outcomes for LGBTQ communities. Through a collaborative process of inquiry, advocacy, and action, PAT is a project of the AIDS Foundation of Chicago, where Ms. Hunt also serves as an advocacy advisor. She's co-host of a monthly LGBTQ storytelling event, the political columnist for FOP Magazine, and has taught numerous workshops and many courses over her career. Kim is also a recent inductee into the Chicago LGBT Hall of Fame. Kim, congratulations on being inducted into the Chicago LGBT Hall of Fame. How are you? I'm great, Michelle, and it's a pleasure to be talking to you again. We have such wonderful conversations, so I'm really looking forward to this one. And thank you for um, uh, your congratulations on the induction. Well, you know, I mean, I was trying to think back to to where I first met you, and I know that one of the first places I saw you was in Chicago at the Esteem Awards, and then mm-hmm. shortly after that, um, I was on the board of MBJC. We had a gathering in D.C., and you were there. And it yes. just looked like we gravitated to each other, <laughs> and you are my sister in arms. And when you call, I'm going to answer, And I, because I know that when I call, you answer. <sighs> Thank you, Michelle. Yes, we did have an instant connection. I remember we were... Uh, once waiting for our uh, respective rides to the airport after an MBJC event, and we had a lot of time to kill, and we killed it just talking to each other, and I had a great time. So, you know, when I first met you, um, and I think that I know I want to get back to where you are now, but you've been, you were with Affinity Community Services, and I think one of the there are things I've observed and watched over you. First, I've watched how affinity has grown. But then at a certain point, you knew that it was time for you to do the next thing. I mean, and that was conscious decision. And I have been on the boards of many organizations to where, you know, those founding people who go on and become, I mean, you almost have to walk them out of there. You know, they, they just, they can't mm-hmm. let it go. That thought, how did you get involved with Affinity, and how did you reach that point? Okay, it's time for me to hand it on. Wow. Well, it it was definitely a journey and a a labor of love. So I first got involved with Affinity as a volunteer to help do grant writing for the organization. I had seen... Chris Smith, who was the founding board president of Affinity, mm-hmm. at an event, um, I, I think it may have even been the Women's Color of, Color of Violence event, and she was on a panel with Yvette Cardona, one of the founders of Amigas Latinas, for a long time a sister agency of Affinities in Chicago. Amigas focused on the... Uh, queer, lesbian, bisexual, Latino women, and Affinity focused uh, early on on uh, black, lesbian, bisexual, and queer women. And Chris just struck me as such um, an amazing person. And when she talked about Affinity, I was um, really excited to get to know the organization more. I had not been out very long and wanted to find community. And what she described um, as affinity sounded like a great place to me. 
And but I wanted to start by offering something to the organization, and I part of what I've done in my career is write proposals for nonprofits, sometimes for pay, sometimes for not, <laughs> and and so I. <laughs> So I volunteered to do that for Affinity for a little while, and then I was asked to join the board. And at this time, I had co-founded a consulting firm with another, uh, a younger black woman uh, whose family is actually from Nigeria. And we were doing uh, community development work, but a lot of what we did focused on uh, building up the nonprofits in the community because they were the ones who were leading the change when it came to community development. And that meant that we had to do a lot of strategic planning, a lot of uh, fundraising plans, a lot of creating templates for um, organizations for their fundraising uh, when they were writing proposals. And so um, being on the board of Affinity allowed me to do some of those same things for that organization. And I know you've done consulting work before, Michelle. You know it can it can fry you because the mm-hmm. hours are not normal. <laughs> and I was uh, co-running a consulting firm that started out as uh, my uh, business partner and I and, and one uh, administrative staff person. And by the time I left five years later, I think we had seven full-time people, a few independent contractors as needed, and our revenues had gone from uh, to close to a million in that five years. Uh, and that's, I'd like to say that's revenue, not profit. <laughs> There's a difference. But it required a constant churn, of, um, and I was burning out quickly. And one of the things that happened while I was on the board of Affinity is that we got two multi-year grants at the same time. That is, it's rare to get a multi-year grant once, but to have two together meant that we could really do some planning and build the capacity of the organization in a way that it couldn't be built before. And there was a desire by the founders many years before and by the board that I was on to have an executive director at some point, and that created the opportunity to do that. It just so happened that I was burning out on my job at the time, and uh, I decided that it w- being a consultant wasn't for me in that, at that moment, or at least not being a consultant in that way. And I uh, was ready to step down from that, and when we had one round of applicants that just didn't turn out to be what we wanted at Affinity. I offered to throw my hat in the ring, and they ran me through the same paces that they ran any other applicant. Uh, They checked my references. They made me do a writing sample. (laughs) I was interviewed. had the telephone screen interview. I had the in-person interview, just like everybody else did, and I was hired. Mm. And I said from the beginning... Uh, in addition to our annual reviews, let's do a check-in at the five-year mark to see if this is still really a good fit, if I'm a good fit for where Affinity wants to be next. So it was always, it was built into my hiring that we would uh, reassess in a way that goes a little deeper than uh, an annual review. And I think it was always my, I shouldn't say I think, I know, it was really my intention that it be a five-year job because I knew the level of work required was going to be similar to what I did with consulting, um, but um, from a different place. And uh, a place that was more about, of course, social justice and um, helping to strengthen an organization that had already been around for quite a while. So after almost seven years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and sometimes in organizations we do dog years, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the board and I had the, the talk probably six, six and a half years in, maybe a little sooner than that. And uh, I was sure that it was time for me to do something different. I felt that um, 
there needed to be someone younger with uh, some new ideas to come in and um, take the organization to the next place after the 20th anniversary, which was in 2015. And I am really proud of the new executive director, Imani Rupert-Gordon, who has been at Affinity about a year. Next month, I think, will be a year for her. And she um, has moved Affinity to a new uh, location in another part of the South Side, much bigger uh, facility than we had uh, for about five years. And um, Affinity continues to do amazing things. Did you feel that, I mean, in, in this journey with Affinity, some of the things that you learned and saw, did that also flow into the Pride Action Tape? Take yeah. Some of those skills that our organizations needed to do. Most definitely. So with Pride Action Tape, I feel like it's an extension of the work that I was doing at Affinity on a different um, platform. So Pride Action Tank was thought of around the time of the marriage fight in Illinois. Um, mm -hmm. We got uh, the marriage bill through the House in um, the fall session of 2013. And as that was winding down and given all of the resources that are required to um, do such a big push as marriage was on a state-by-state -state level, and also not just the resources, but the energy of the people that um, desire to be connected in some way to action and to results uh, was something that some of the activists involved in the Pride Action, I'm sorry, involved in the marriage fight wanted to see continue. And Tracy Bain, who is the uh, founder and publisher of the Windy City Times, the LGBT newspaper here uh, for over 30 years at this point, was one of those people who began to talk about some kind of ongoing institute or something where we could continue to house coalitions because, uh, again, I know you know this from experience, when you have coalitions, they fall apart a lot of times because there's just nobody who can devote the time to all of the administrative pieces that have to happen to hold folks together, phone calls, scheduling meetings, getting notes out, um, all that kind of heavy lifting just so people can come to the table and talk about and then do the work that um, they want to do. Um, so we wanted to do that. We also wanted to uh, provide space for thinking about other types of projects that the community might want to be engaged in that were uh, very much needed, um, but that may not be under the purview of any one organization. So we talked about that um, for quite some time. Um, and just it was one of those things that we folks wanted to see happen, but hadn't quite figured out how to make happen. But in the meantime, about six months or so after marriage, uh, Tracy announced the uh, summit on LGBTQ youth homelessness, and she'd asked me to be the summit director for that. So she and I, along with uh, a person who had worked very, um, very much with young people for a long time, and two youth advocates, planned this two and a half day summit that was really focused on brainstorming and finding solutions to youth homelessness. And our first day was focused on young people. Uh, they were only young people there, about 100 of them who were experiencing homelessness or had at some point in their lives with some adult allies who were there to just make sure that they had what they needed for the day. And we had six uh, topic areas and about three prompts around uh, things like, what are you experiencing now? What are some issues in your life? What would you like your life to be, look like, and the community to look like? And then what are some ideas for, for getting there? We did that with young people. The second day we did that with service providers, um, researchers, uh, agency heads, funders, um, elected and appointed officials, 
anybody who touches homelessness in some way, same topic areas, same prompts, they share their ideas. We put all of this information together, and then we had a half-day report back session that included the media, more funders, more uh, decision makers than anyone else who wanted to return. And out of that came, for example, a project to um, install. Well, before you that, mm-hmm. can, let me take a quick break, and then we'll get right okay. back. I want to go into that a little bit more. Okay. So take a quick break with our guest, Kim Hunt, here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we'll be right back. not so famous, the lady next door, that person who has that story, who may, you might walk past a million times, and you see them, you're like, what's their deal? Well, I'm going to tell you what their deal is. People who are doing things and making changes in big ways and in little ways, but changes that help us all grow and be more human. This show is for thinkers, dreamers, people who want to know, people who want to see beyond the black and white or their neighbor, uh, their neighborhood or their, their community, who want to get an ideal about a world view, a local view, who want to learn things that they can take on and make them say, hmm, and apply in their life. My son often said, you know, mom, you'll talk to anybody. And people will always say, I come up and I'll have some interesting people. And it's sort of like, no, you just collect stories and you just collect people. And so I think that these people who I'm talking to are part of that collection. They're part of these memories, these great stories. They're my collection. <laughs> my name is Michelle Elizabeth Brown, and my show is Collections by Michelle. Well, we're back. We're- more collections by Michelle Brown and our guest Kim Hunt. You know, Kim, it was right about that time. I remember you coming to Detroit, and um, we sat down, you and I, with someone who I recently also had on the show, Jerry Peterson, and we were talking about these things with young people. And I know that um, you guys did that. I knew was it a camp out. I mean, it was really cold. You know, really cold where young people. <laughs> and now I know that you're going into the tiny homes. Um, I know that, that um, Ruth Ellis Center has started to do a thing with um, health care. What other things came out of that summit you were, we were talking about when we took our break? Yeah, so um, other things that came out of the summit, something that came out before we were even able to form Pride Action Tank was the storage project that uh, came together as a result of a young person sharing at the summit their experience of carrying all of their stuff on their back and the the stigma and the inability to relax while in school because you're worried about your things. Um, So there were funders at that summit report back, and they said that sounds like something we could be a part of, and they funded a little mini project to understand what's happening across the country in in terms of storage. Um, That mini project employed young people who were experiencing homelessness. And they made recommendations and uh, reported those recommendations back. And as a result, Chicago has a pilot project for installing 250 storage lockers in youth shelters across the city. And that came out of that summit. And so that model of convening people, having them um, describe the the lives they're experiencing, brainstorming solutions, and then actioning those solutions were the foundation of the Pride Action Tank. And so you mentioned the sleep out. We did that in November of 2015 to bring awareness to youth homelessness and also raise money for organizations. So we raised $44,000 for 18 organizations in Chicago. We had the Tiny Homes Summit because tiny homes were looked at as one way to um, provide housing for young people, and we actually partnered with the American Association, American Institute of Architects, to get um, 
uh, competition and then the winning model was built. And you've been sending me articles on what's happening in, with tiny homes in Detroit. Um, so we're trying to make that happen here in Chicago. Uh, we are, uh, have been talking to the Department of Children and Family Services here for the last few years about a project to um, recruit more LGBTQ uh, parents, foster parents to the system, and also to work with older LGBTQ youth to help them uh, uh, actually recruit their own foster parents. So we hope to do that with um, a video project. We've already gotten approval by the, the guardian who works with Department of Children and Family Services to have so that youth under 18 can actually share their stories. And, um, and we're actually going to be doing a summit on aging in May, uh, May 23rd through 25th, that will be structured much like the uh, youth summit uh, in that there will be a brainstorming time where we hope to, to have some uh, issues related to older adults that we can action. Now, you know, the Obamas talked about their foundation, and uh, we know that part of it is going to be uh, in the, uh, their library there in Chicago. And a lot of what they're talking about is continuing their social justice issues that they, they hold dear to their heart. How do you see or do you see Pride Action Tank interfacing with that? Do you, do you expect to have a sit-down with that to sort of talk about these are LGBT issues that, you know, we want you to get on board with, hear about, or need to be put into, your, mm -hmm. into the bigger strategy? And we definitely want to do that kind of thing. In in an ironic twist of fate, I actually wound up for a millisecond in the video where the um, Obamas announced that the museum was going to be on the south side. <laughs> happened to be at an event where one of our local historians was speaking, and I was sitting right next to him on the panel. Uh, so I, I made it into the video, uh, and that that's. I have to say, a highlight of my life. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, in terms of being able to, to sit down and have those kinds of discussions, we would love that. I'm not quite sure how to make it happen yet, but I think because of the way that we do our work in terms of having these multi-identity, multi-issue coalitions that we put together uh, to move public policy, but to also bring awareness to issues, I think there will definitely be opportunities for us to work uh, with the Obama Library. My hope and assumption is that they will have some types of trainings uh, on youth or uh, community organizing and other like really public events and make that space available to the community as well. And when they do that, we certainly want to be a part of that. We try to move our work across the city. As you may know, uh, Chicago is often named one of the most segregated cities mm -hmm. in the country. And here it's really important to do work in multiple places. So we try to make sure that we are, uh, are doing that when we put our programs together. So uh, do you feel that in some ways, I mean, in a, you know, we're going into a, no, a whole new era. You know, mm -hmm. that, you know, it's uncharted territory. I mean, we can, we've gotten mm -hmm. hints at it. But how important do you feel to have the Pride Action Tank? Is it, and is it something that you think that should, should be duplicated across the country in other LGBT communities? Well, those are definitely things that we think about. Um, you know, we've only been doing this since October of 2015, and and it's a, a model that's evolving. Even to kind of try to write down what we do is a challenge sometimes, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's a challenge I have to face every time I put a proposal together for for funding. Um, I think what is most pertinent about what we do is we start from centering the voices of the people who are impacted by the issues that we work on. So like with that youth summit, we, had, uh, we started that summit with almost 100 young people. 
uh, before we moved into other people's ideas. And so that's definitely something that should happen across the country. And uh, also we, I mentioned the multi-issue work. Um, so that takes us to uh, places where we work with folks who are outside of the LGBTQ community. And I think that's important for the LGBTQ movement as we evolve. And I know there have been some points in history where that's happened, especially with the gay liberation movement. Um, so I think we're picking up on, on that history. And so, you know, we're doing work with uh, a new collective called the Trust Collective Chicago, and it was put together in response to the Orlando massacre, and it has LGBTQ organizations, Muslim organizations, and Latino organizations that are um, building relationships and community and trying to figure out what it is that we move on together. And, and that reminds me of something that um, I, I experienced with um, Reverend uh, Barber. I'm, I'm blanking on his first name right now, but um, the, the, the lead of the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, he spoke at Creating Change the other night, William Barber. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember going to a training session that he did a few years ago in North Carolina where they were trying to figure out how to um, pass on the Moral Move Mondays movement to other parts of the country and lessons learned and all that. And I remember him talking about spending years building relationships with other movements and organizations across the state without really knowing what if they'd ever be working on anything but just connecting to uh, what they had in common and because of that was able to build the Moral Mondays movement. So I see that as something, there's pieces of that in our work at Pride Action Tank and that is the work that really needs to, to move across the country. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I have one last you know, sort of like kind of like each year, you know, Affinity has the burning bowl ceremony. Mm-hmm. When you stood there this January and you looked back at some of the challenges and negativity of the, of the past year and then looking towards goals and focuses for the current year from an activist, public servant, lesbian position, what were some of those things that that you might be able to share? Mm. Wow. This is the first, this was the first burning bowl that I attended in seven or eight years, maybe a little more, where I actually didn't have a role. Mm. (laughs) So I actually got to uh, be a part of Burning Bowl like everyone else is. And I think, you know, for, for you know, looking back on the previous year, um, as a social justice activist, uh, one who pays attention to these issues, you know, part of what brought me pain and just really not knowing how to deal with is um, the number of shootings and murders in Chicago. When I first moved to Chicago in the mid-80s, it was considered the murder capital of the world. And then crime went went down and uh, then went back up again. And even where, for as bad as it is now, it's not where it was in the the eighties, but I I um, I'm just not sure what to do about about that situation. I know that there has been a large disinvestment of resources in communities on the south and west sides of, of the city. Uh, our school public school system is not what it should be at all. Um, opportunities for young people are not what they should be at all. 
And I also look at the amazing young people who are doing um, work for the liberation of black people, thinking of BYP 100 and Black Lives Matter. And I'm wondering where these two uh, parts of our community can come together. On the one hand, the, the folks who are experiencing violence and are perpetuating violence, um, and for those who are experiencing violence who, who want relief, and relief for them is a heavier police presence, and then um, folks who are organizing in the streets against the institutional racism that is buried in many of our systems like uh, in institutions like the police department in Chicago that just got slammed really hard by the Department of Justice for its policies and practices. And where is that place where folks can, folks can get the resources they need so that, um, uh, you know, resorting to violence isn't the immediate answer, and then folks can get the safety and security they need um, without having to have um, a military state in their neighborhood. So that's something that's just been heavy on my, my heart over the, the last few years and I think really came to fruition um, around Burning Bowl as, you know, the numbers were counted and we had um, just this spike in, in, in crime again. On the other hand, I see a lot of activism. I see a lot of people who want to be plugged in in some way. Um, there were so many community meetings after the election where hundreds and hundreds of people have shown up, um, even though, uh, especially early in after the election, there was no clear sense of what would be done. People just wanted to be in community and let it be known that they wanted to do something when they got as they move through their grief or maybe after moving through their grief. And that, that brings me, me joy and, and hope that we're going to figure out a lot of things this year. So, Kim, you have a, a story to tell, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute when we come back from this quick break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. I'll be talking to the famous, the not-so-famous, the lady next door, that person who has a story, who may, you might walk past a million times, and you see them, you wonder, like, what's their deal? Well, I'm going to tell you what their deal is. People who are doing things and making changes in big ways and in little ways, but changes that help us all grow and be more human. This show is for thinkers, dreamers, people who want to know, people who want to see beyond the black and white or their neighbor, uh, their neighborhood or their, their community, who want to get an idea about a world view, a local view, who want to learn things that they can take on and make them say, hmm, and apply in their life. My son often said, you know, mom, you'll talk to anybody. And people will always say, I come up and I'll have some interesting people. And it's all like, no, you just collect stories and you just collect people. And so I think that these people who I'm talking to are part of that collection. They're part of these memories, these great stories. They're my collection. <laughs> my name is Michelle Elizabeth Brown, and my show is Collections by Michelle. And we're back. Kim, you have been sharing a really great story, one of the many great stories um, in your life. But one of the things that I know that you've taken on that I really love, because besides doing the work we do, I love, to, I love storytelling. And you have <laughs> taken on being the co-host of a monthly LGBTQ storytelling event. Mm-hmm. How did that come to place? And... and and what kind of stories are you are you telling, and why is it so important? Ah, yeah, this is 
this is just one of the the coolest things that I've ever been a part of. So it's called <laughs> it's called Outspoken LGBTQ Stories, and I co-hosted along with the owner of the largest uh, gay bar in Chicago, Sidetrack, um, uh, Art Johnston, who has been a, an organizer since the 70s. And it is a curated show, so we have six, sometimes seven, storytellers a night. They talk to our creator, David Fink, who owns um, a theater in Three Oaks, Michigan, and comes to Chicago regularly to meet with folks to talk about their stories. It started in uh, August of 2014, and it started with David taking art to one of the many storytelling events that happens in Chicago, and Art just loved it. And I got a call um, shortly after that experience uh, asking me if I would co-host something, and he asked me if I'd ever heard of The Moth and all of this. I'm like, yes, of course. I listen to that podcast all the time. This was all new to Art. (laughs) Completely new for him. Um, But everybody else was like, oh, yeah, I totally get it. Um, so we put together this show that featured some of the leaders in the LGBTQ community, and we did it at Sidetrack. Our, um, uh, our community is so extensive. We even have um, someone from the local radio station who does the sound for us, and he uh, uh, does a, a recording of all the shows. And so we did the one show. It was packed. It was just packed, and it was a lot of fun. I shared a story that night so I, and co-hosted. Um, the, I told a story about um, marriage and my journey back to marriage because I'd been married before, but uh, in a heterosexual relationship. And there were stories about history of the community. There were a few coming out stories, those kinds of things. Um, Then Art asked me if I would continue to be a co-host, and so we celebrated two years in August of last year, so we're going into our third year. We've had hundreds of storytellers at this point. Uh, We've had some coming out stories, but they're usually part of a larger story. We've had stories that center on race, stories that center on gender identity. We've had animal husbandry stories. (laughs) <laughs> we, we've had stories about a person's uh, scientific trip to Antarctica. Oh, my gosh. The range of stories in our community just astounds me. And we've had folks who are um, actors and professional storytellers, and we've had regular folks who have never been on a stage before in their lives. And every month the place is packed whether there's six inches of snow on the ground or whether it's 80 or 90 degrees outside. The place is full and people love it. You know, I I like that you said that, you know, you've had all these stories because, you know, as someone who tells stories, when you walk in, often I've had people like, they assume that I'm going to tell a a coming out story. Mm -hmm. Or Mm -hmm. a gay story, but we live these lives. Yes. Is, you know, talk about our intersection. We live these lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, on both sides, how do you, uh, as the host, how do you find that, that balance between, yes, yeah, some people do need to tell their coming out, and it's important to hear our coming out stories, and it's mm-hmm. important that, but it's also important to hear the person who does animal husbandry. You know, I mean, that, that yeah. be, how, how do you, how do you, have you found that, as in this two years that it has sort of balanced out, or do you find that, you know, sometimes you have to sort of really look at it and go like, you know, this is, we need this, this, this says a bigger story about our community because it's not specifically talking about an LGBT issue. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we have a cure, David is our curator. So he has a general sense of what every story is going to be about. And sometimes people need a lot of help on their stories. Sometimes people need a little help on their stories. Um, While he doesn't always know what the full content is going to be, 
when he talks to them, he does say, you know, I we try to avoid stories that are just purely coming out stories unless it's part of a bigger story. So we do want to show that fullness of our lives. And while coming out is a huge, huge process, um, I, the stories around the coming out are also uh, really interesting and helps. Hearing these stories has helped so many people who thought that they were the only ones who had a particular experience or learned something about our history that they didn't know or learned that they had an ally in a space that they didn't know was there. And we've had a lot of straight people come, and uh, they are just blown away by the diversity in the storytelling. So we haven't really had to um, sort of police or cherry pick the stories very much. If someone comes to David and says they want to tell a story, he generally puts them on the calendar. And because we're very intentional about diversity, he will say to cisgender white gay men, uh, you're going to have to be pushed back several months because we have enough white men on the roster. <laughs> so, so he does not mind saying that at all, and I love him for that. And then with our audiences, I often call it the most uh, diverse uh, two hours in Boys Town in Chicago because you don't find a lot of women in the, the gay bars, and as this may be mm -hmm. true across the country, and you don't find a lot of people of color in the gay bars in the, on the north side of Chicago. So we are able to kind of break down a lot of barriers that have historically been there, even if it isn't the attention today, um, but that history really means something, especially in a place like Chicago. Yeah, I think that that's something, not only the stories, but like you said, there's, there is that intersectionality. It's the stories that are showing the broader, but here, the, the, mm -hmm. the very location is pulling mm -hmm. in people from different groups, which really makes us stronger all mm -hmm. together. You know, and it sort of seems like a lot of things probably intentionally, but not. You know, that's mm -hmm. what, what it seems like that you're doing. I mean, with, between your work in advocacy, your work in nonprofits, your work in this think tank, that is, you're trying to to pull all these people to all these grand, glorious pieces that mm -hmm. are really spectacular, but they're in one place and it's amplifying them. Yeah, and I think stories are a good way to uh, help us see the humanness in each other and the humaneness in each other. Um, you can do that through presentations and, you know, statistics and all of that, and I do have to do that in my life. But when someone shares a story, you know, they're, they're opening themselves up to a vulnerability. And with our audience, it is so supportive. We've seen people so nervous that the paper is shaking in their hands, even the whole time they're on the stage. And the audience is just with them. They lift them up, and they give them the courage to continue telling the story. And, and one, in one instance, the person whose paper was shaking was um, a white, older white gay man who's a psychiatrist. And so you don't expect a person like that, that to uh, be in a, a volunteer, to be in a space that's so vulnerable. So seeing the human side of um, who we are has also been another act of social justice. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, how did you feel when you went up there? Okay, I mean, let's face it, your life's pretty much, I mean, an open book. I mean, like people know, <laughs> people people think that they know you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. you know how it is. It's like, oh, yeah, I know you. You were here, here, and here. When yeah. you got up there on that stage, Mm -hmm. how, did, yeah. how did you feel like, did you feel like an, a new vulnerability, even though all of these people knew you and you are Kim L. Hunt, you know, but did you feel <laughs> a new vulnerability when you got up there on that stage to tell your story? I was terrified, and I've been on stages all the time, 
you know, and and I always have some nervousness about public speaking. A lot of people don't believe this, but I was a very, very shy kid growing up and am still very much an introvert, but, you know, I do the public speaking because that's my role. Um, but I'm always talking about these bigger issues and other things, and it's not, it's personal, but it's not personal in the same way. So to be on that stage, especially the first time, um, and to tell a story, because it's, it's talking about something in a format that I'm not used, in a way that I'm not used to talking about it, and it's about me, um, <laughs> I was just terrified. But because our audience is so amazing, there was a point at which I relaxed. And um, Art told me later, he said, I, I saw when you relaxed, and your story got better. And so... <laughs> For me, part of storytelling, and now I've done it on other stages, because as you know, once you start <laughs> storytelling, it's just a bug that gets inside of you and you can't let it go. Um, so now I've gotten, because I've had more practice, I've gotten better at it, but there's still that nervousness and, you know, because the stories are so personal, are people really going to be interested in it and that kind of thing that pops into my head as I go through that process. Do you, I'll tell you, one of the things that, that I noticed when I started to really get into it, I suddenly saw my dad. My dad could tell the great stories. Mm-hmm. He didn't appreciate mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. one day I was like, damn, I'm being my dad. Do you have yes. something in your family that now sometimes when you're up there, you're going like, wow, I'm channeling. Oh <laughs> yes, I uh, grew up with some great storytellers, and I, I think part of my fear was early on was that I wouldn't be able to tell the stories as well as, as they told them, but it's, it's in my blood because, um, yeah, my mom, my grandmother, uncles and aunts, um, you know, back in the day, that was our entertainment, right? We worked plugged in all the time. We sat on the porch and, and talked and eventually told stories. That's how we learned about family members who we would never meet was through storytelling. So stories have been a big part of, of most cultures, history. And stories make us slow down. And I think that's really, really important in these days where everything is so immediate, everything is such a sound bite. To have to slow down and hear a story is uh, getting back I think, to, to the roots of who we are as human beings. Mm. Well, Kim, we're going to take one last break, and we'll be right back on Collections by Michelle Brown. I'll be talking to the famous, the not-so-famous, the lady next door, that person who has that story, who may, you might walk past a million times, and you see them, you're like, what's their deal? I'm going to tell you what their deal is. People who are doing things and making changes in big ways and in little ways, but changes that help us all grow and be more human. This show is for thinkers and dreamers, people who want to know, people who want to see beyond the black and white or their neighbor, uh, their neighborhood or their, their community. We want to get an idea about a world view, a local view. We want to learn things that they can take on and make them say, hmm, and apply in their life. My son often said, you know, mom, you'll talk to anybody. And people will always say, I come up and I'll have some interesting people. And it's all like, no, you just collect stories and you just collect people. And so I think that these people who I'm talking to are part of that collection. They're part of these memories, these great stories. They're my collection. <laughs> my name is Michelle Elizabeth Brown, and my show is Collections by Michelle. You were inducted, we're back. <laughs> you were inducted, Kim, into the Chicago LGBT Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we do what we do because it's our passion, it's what we believe in. And, you know, not really looking for the awards or inductions, mm-hmm. but 
when it comes, it's like it's it's something special. What was that moment like when you heard you were going to be inducted and when you were in that moment, when you were being recognized by your community during the induction ceremony? Wow. That's a great question. So um, you have to be nominated to be in the Hall of Fame. And someone reached out to me who I just, I didn't expect it at all. And he asked if, and you have to be nominated from, by someone who's already in the Hall of Fame. And so this, this is someone who I work with on, on another board uh, for the Legacy Project, uh, which is responsible for the pylons that have the, the plaques on them in Hall, on Halstead. Mm-hmm. And this, he, he said, do you mind if I nominate you? I'm like, what? <laughs> wow. No, I don't mind. And I am really, really honored that you would do that. I, I really appreciate it. And he had to ask for some information. And after that, I just let it go. Um, and then I got a call uh, sometime later, a month or so later, uh, telling me that I would be was going to be inducted and I cried because I thought about all the other folks who are in the Chicago LGBT Hall of Fame and just all the amazing work that they've done and I was really humbled and by then uh, I knew that there was a possibility that I wouldn't be able to go to the ceremony <laughs> yeah because I'd been asked to go on a trip to Israel in the West Bank. And I knew it was going to be in November. The ceremony is November, so I just wasn't quite sure of the dates. When it turned out that uh, the dates did indeed overlap, I asked my daughters to accept um, on my behalf. And then, like any mother, I made sure that they were surrounded by people who they knew. So I started calling friends and family <laughs> to say, you have to go. I wouldn't have done that, frankly, if I was going to be there because I'm, I'm so humbled by this. Um, but they're like, yeah, we got their backs. We're good. We're good. And so um, my first night in Israel was the night of the Hall of Fame ceremony. And I started getting pictures from all of my friends of my daughters being on the stage and um, I think that was the proudest moment of my life mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I yeah. feel, and I'm feeling I'm sitting here blinking you know? <laughs> because you know it, it is and especially, wow, to have your daughters there and to have friends around them to support them for you. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can call yourself a new Oprah now. You made me cry. That is just like so... So, and I know, and isn't there something that you know that your kids know what you do? Yeah. You know, you well, know. Yeah. <laughs> One of my daughters said, Mom, I had no idea uh-huh. <laughs> that you did all that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so they're, they're my profile picture on my Facebook page. It's uh, uh-huh. my daughters with the award. Yeah, I mean, and I mean that is just like, and, and first of all, the, the decision you had to make, but then to do that, but it couldn't have gotten better. It couldn't have been better. I mean, right. it, it, sounds like it, it sounds like it was just like the very perfect mm-hmm. thing to happen. I mean, you know, that is just oh, that is so touching, and that's so <laughs> so beautiful. Um, yeah. I'm gonna. I, I, I now the question that I try to ask everyone, and you know, people go like. You weren't supposed to hit me with that, but I'm going to. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I'm going to. I'd like to ask you, how do you feel 
that the intersections that influence in your life have impacted the directions you've taken, you know, as you come along, and how is it going to impact your future work? Hmm. You know, for a long time, I felt I had to pick which identity I was going to work on. So when I was, I didn't come out until I was 30, 30-something. 30 so I, I didn't necessarily wear a lesbian or queer label, but I remember even going to, to college and going to, to school in Iowa and um, when folks were doing various protests like you, like you do in college, <laughs> I you know, often felt like I had to pick be, between being a woman and leading my protest with, from that ad- identity or being a black person and leading the protest from that identity. And um, one thing about working with affinity that I really came to appreciate is that I don't have to split myself up. And Affinity was like many organizations that focus on people of color and their various identities. It was uh, a place where I learned about intersectionality and how to bring my whole self to my work. And because of where the LGBTQ community is in terms of, you know, we've won this, this right to marry, which feels, which is great, um, but doesn't necessarily uh, bring up issues of race or gender, gender identity or um, uh, social economic status and all of those other messy things, um, we, we're forced as a community and as a movement to look more intersectionally. And when uh, funders start ter- talking about intersectionality, you know, it's, it, it, it's got some traction. <laughs> and that's what funders are do- doing now. So I think um, folks are not willing anymore to check parts of their identity at the door when they do their work in as this work is being developed and planned and whether it's, you know, the specific projects or thinking more strategy level. Um, I think there is a necessary openness to dealing with the full person rather than having folks split up their identities to do this work. So that's, that's a good thing, but it's also not linear. It's not neat, it's very messy, it's very contentious, and we've been polite a long time and we have to get down and dirty and have these real conversations that are gonna make all of us uncomfortable. But until we do that as, as a country, as a movement, as individuals, we're not really getting the work done. Well, you know, uh We've, we're coming to the end of this road, my friend. <laughs> I mean, I we always so, have such great conversations. <laughs> I know, I know. You know, well, you know, we were, we were, well, but for us, the conversation is going to be a lifelong thing, and we will be talking again mm-hmm. and again, more in different places and different situations and about different things. Um, <laughs> the about. The Pride Action Tank, how, if people want to learn more about it um, and what the next steps are, the Elder Summit that you have coming up, how do they find out that? Oh, yes. So we have a a website, prideactiontank.org. Folks can um, see what's happening there. You can also join our mailing list there and then you'll get our newsletter and the other email communications that we send out. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, We post uh, things more frequently on those formats because they're just easier to update. Uh, And the newsletter comes out pretty regularly. Once a week we're actually sending things out to people to make them aware of them. Um, so those are the best ways to, to stay connected and see what we're doing. Well, I know you're on the road. <laughs> Safe travels. Thank um, you. 
I hope to be in your city soon. <laughs> um, that would be and, great. <laughs> you know, we've got dinner and thing coming, but I want to thank you so much for being one of my guests here on Collections by Michelle Brown. I look forward to continuing the conversation, not only with you, but um, for the people who tune in each week, that they will have an opportunity to meet more people who are really engaged and involved and living intersectionally, who are standing in those crosshairs, living their lives boldly, and creating change. Kim, thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle, for doing what you do and for asking me to be on the show. All right. Well, good night. Good night.